Well, the Lord Jesus, he spoke to his servant, John, the Apostle John, as we know him, John the Beloved, as we sometimes refer to him. The Lord Jesus spoke to John on the island of Patmos. And in speaking to him, he gives him not only a a vision of himself, not only a vision of who the resurrected Christ and the returning Christ is, but he gives him then seven specific letters to seven specific churches that really meant something to them at that time and have a timeless message for each of us. And in every one of these letters, though as I explained two weeks ago, some people try to impose um, an age or upon those letters and say, well, they represent different ages in the church. I don't see that in the Scripture. It just, there's no place in the Scripture where you interpret the Bible like that. But what I think that you do see is that you see specific issues that do arise in the church that's spelled out in these seven specific letters. But what gets me in the book of Revelation, and I've taught this literally across this country and in several other nations, what gets me in Revelation is not the prophetic imagery, it's not the prophecies that will be fulfilled at the end of time, it's not only the interpretation of some of the Old Testament prophecies that we discover, but what seizes my heart, and I think what really is the purpose of Revelation, is we see Jesus, is we see Jesus. And if you miss Jesus because you're intrigued by all the other things that maybe sell a lot of books or maybe make a lot of colorful posters, if you miss Jesus, then you've missed what the book is all about. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so as we sang that course tonight, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face. That's my prayer is that God will be big in our eyes of faith. God will be big in our hearts. So I want you to stand with me and I want to read to you the letter to Thyatira tonight. We've covered the other three. But the letter to Thyatira, and I believe that the notes have the fill-ins for those of you that weren't able to be with us. This is the second part of a single message on this chapter. And by the way, thank you. I came into this message series with a lot of stress because I wanted to get so much ground covered in a certain amount of time. And so many of you said to me, Pastor, don't feel like you've got to rush. Take your time. Take your time. And I feel like the Lord has used you to speak to me and just uh, rather than feel like I'm under the gun with a calendar, we're just going to take our time and go through this together. And we'll stop at appropriate places. But thank you for speaking that into my life. I really do believe the Lord used you to kind of help me relax and go, you know, we don't have to make this fit a calendar. We just want to meet each week with the Lord here on Wednesday night. Amen? So let's look at this passage. Jesus now tells John, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Remember, we said that the angel of the church would be the pastor. It could be interpreted as angel. I, I don't see that, but, you know, the word is messenger is what it is, and the pastor is the messenger. If you live with me any time at all, you know I'm no angel, <laughs> but I will tell you this. I do want to be a messenger of the Lord, okay? I want you to be messengers of the Lord, and we're going to look at that tonight in this passage. But I do believe that there are angels encamped around about this place, and I do believe that the angel of the Lord watches over us and our children. Can you say amen to that? So I, I, I want to point this out. He's saying in this verse, write this message to the pastor to give to the church. This is the message from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze or brass. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love. It's the first church of the seven churches to be commended for love. Remember, the Ephesians had lost their first love. He said, I've seen your love. 
I've seen your faith. And in the Bible, if you read the epistles, faith and love always go together. Amen? Amen. I've seen your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And that's what faithful love does. Faithful love serves God by serving others and endures under any persecution or trial. Can you say amen to that? And man, oh, I think, I don't even know how to do one, but I think I could do a cartwheel tonight if Jesus said to Woodland, I've seen your love, I've seen your true faith, and I've seen your service and your faithfulness. Boy, what a message to a church. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Those that are growing in Christ, they were continually growing. They were increasing in their faith. But I had this complaint, Jesus says, against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Now, her name probably isn't Jezebel, but we'll talk about it a little later in the message. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Now, remember, we've already seen those that call themselves Jews, but they're not. Those that call themselves apostles, but they are not. We've already seen that in this chapter. And here, there's one being called, she's calling herself a prophet, but she's not. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. So he teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent. Isn't that merciful? I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead or her disciples. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. Now remember, God is concerned about the purity of his church. Remember what he did about Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. We looked at that as we went through the book of Acts. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. It's the first time and the only time I can find in the scripture that's ever used. We read about the depths of God, the things of God, but this is the first time and the only time in the scripture you see this. They call them deeper truths, the depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over the nations, and they will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. What is that? I will give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He's saying to the churches. O Holy Spirit of God, You are the one who comes and you make Christ real and known to us. You teach us and bring back to our remembrance the things that he has said. As we sing this song tonight, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Oh God, would you enlarge our hearts tonight? God, would you open our eyes to heavenly things? And would you open our ears this evening and God be big and be bold and glorious and triumphant in our life. Let us be in awe, Lord, as we go through the word and prepare to come to the altar tonight. Let us be in awe of you, Lord, in the most awesome way. Be in awe of you, our Lord and Savior. And the Holy Spirit, I ask you, would you help us to grasp what Jesus said to the church then and what he says to us today. And God, what this has to do with all that's coming in the rest of this wonderful book. God, you have promised a gift to all those who read and do what's in this book. So I pray for your blessings upon us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. Well, my prayer this evening as we go through this is that we will remember that Jesus is touchable, Jesus is graspable, Jesus is loving, Jesus is kind, Jesus touched those that no one else would touch. Jesus touched the sinners and the lepers and 
He brought them to himself. And I, my prayer tonight is that we remember everything that the gospels teach us, but that we will also see our resurrected Lord standing in our midst because you will never know who you are until you know who Jesus is. And the identity problems of our world today, whether it's gender identity or whether it's the identity of you trying to find yourself. And I remember one time telling my daddy when I was a teenager, I just need to find myself. And daddy told me, he said, fellow, if you ever forget who you are, I'll remind you. You know, I, I knew who my identity was as, as, as the son of Buford Clannon, but I want you to know tonight that our real identity, it's all wrapped up in Jesus. And that's why these letters are so important to understanding all that's coming later into the book of Revelation because these seven letter, letters are not just something you lift out of the book, but they're a part of the book for helping us to interpret what comes on ahead of us. It's like Jesus is stepping out right in front of the church. It's like the tribe of Judah did when they went into battle with Israel. It's like Jesus is stepping out in front of the church. He's the captain of the host. We're following in his footsteps. He leads us into battle against the foes and no weapon formed against us is ever going to stand. That's what you're reading in these letters to these seven churches in chapters uh, two and three today. Well, the church in Thyatira is, interestingly enough, praised and warned. The church is praised and it's warned. There's something going on with this church that is uniquely different and the church has, has gotten the attention of God and the church has gotten the attention of, of Jesus. And so what is happening here is, as we said earlier, the church has been given a message about who they are and what they are, but it's also a church that we have to look carefully at because of the warning. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. All throughout this, we are seeing the eyes of the Lord. Our attention is being called to the eyes of the Lord. We're being called to not only who he is, but how he looks at us. And we've talked about this already just as a reminder that Jesus' eyes, they're penetrating and they're discerning. What I didn't have time to finish up the week before, and it was part of this, of the message, is that Jesus is teaching us how to be discerning. Jesus is teaching us how to cut a clear line between light and darkness. Jesus is teaching us how to discern between good and evil and how to discern between the so-called, quote, deeper truths that are really truths or the depths of Satan and between what is really the light of the gospel and what it means to live in that light. The church is a faithful church and it's a loving church, but it's being invaded. It's being invaded by the teachings of this prophetess name or called Jezebel. And what God is doing is he's reaching out with his eyes. He's looking in the church and look at me tonight and hear this carefully. Jesus is looking into the church, which means he's looking into your heart and he's looking into my heart and he's penetrating to the very core of our lives by his word and by his spirit, helping us to become more discerning. I want to walk in the light of the Lord, don't you? I mean, how many times, think about in, in the book of Psalms, the Lord is my light and my salvation. We walk in light. Google those things or do a search in your, in your Bible with your concordance and look how important it is to walk in the light of the Lord. And when Jesus is looking at you with those eyes that burn like coal, he's bringing light and he's bringing discernment. And trust me, you cannot understand the rest of this book without the light of the Lord. It's not a locked up book. We've already looked at that. It's not a book that there's been a key put on it. You're supposed to be able to understand it. And my prayer is that I will be able to preach it in such a simple, uncomplicated way that you'll walk out of here going, why in the world was this ever so confusing to me? And why was I so afraid to read it? And why was I so afraid to apply it? The book is a blessing. It's a gift to us. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? But by the way, all of, the Bible can under be, all of the Bible can only be understood in the light of the Lord. 
He's not kicking this church out. I think that's what's important. There's this prophetess, so-called prophetess, named Jezebel, who's leading the church in error, and he's not kicking the church out. Mercifully, he says to her, I'm giving you t- I've given you time to repent. He gave her grace. He gave her space, but she and her disciples did not want to repent. We are often so busy about trying to exclude who's in and who's out, where Jesus, the great shepherd, is, is trying to pull people in and to lead people in and to teach them and to bring correction into their lives. But there does come a time where you may say to the Lord, I don't want to be corrected. I want to go this way. I want to believe this lie. And you know, I told you two weeks ago, the Calvinists say that if you do that, you were never saved. The Arminians call it falling away from grace. Either way, both people, whether you're Arminian or Calvinist, both of them end up not being in heaven. They end up being in hell. And so the point I want you to see here is not a Calvinist or an Arminian argument. The point I want you to see here this morning is that God is gracious. He gives time and he gives space to repent and to understand this. You've got to walk in the light of the Lord, but we're not in the business of trying to keep people out. We want to show them how to become what God has called you to be. How to become, that's what I try to do here every Sunday morning. You know, those of you that attend on Wednesday night, Wednesday night, I'm very exegetical, going chapter by chapter through the scripture in different books of the Bible. But Sunday morning, we're taking those needs that Christians and unbelievers have alike in common, and we're showing people how they can live the life that God has called them, that God has more for them. And so the second thing I want you to see is not only the discernment so we can separate light from darkness or good from evil, but you see his feet were like burnished bronze and like burnished brass. He has dominion. And the feet of burnished bronze and brass throughout the Bible, if you understand Bible types and symbols, and you can search this out again, it's not difficult to see, but the feet always have to do with dominion. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your your feet. That's called dominion. It's going all the way back. Remember I told you, everything that you find in the first three chapters of Genesis, you're going to read about in the book of Revelation. And there God gave us this dominion mandate, but God also gives us dominion as well. The feet are, the, the feet are a symbol of rulership. They're a symbol of governance. But what I want you to notice is these are feet of bronze or brass. And Thyatira was a place where bronze and brass was smelted. This was symbols that they would have understood. And the feet of brass and bronze meant that they had been through the fire. And what Jesus wanted us to see, this resurrected Lord still with the the nail prints in his hand, the nail prints in his feet, this Jesus had went through the fire, fiery furnace for us at Calvary, where he suffered for our sins, he bled for our sins, he died for our sins, he purchased our salvation at Calvary, and on the third day, God raised him again from the dead. That's the day we're about to celebrate called Easter. We are not celebrating some some fat little Buddha type of Savior. We are celebrating a Savior tonight who suffered and bled and died so that you and I could be saved. He went through the fiery furnace and he arose from the dead on the third day. Glory to God. That's important to see in this. And if if you don't see this, your God is too small. How can you stand up against the persecution if you don't have the eyes of discernment? How can you understand, especially in a, in a synchronistic society like we live in today, where it's no longer God bless America, but God's bless America, whatever God or whatever truth that you choose to happen, this is not the America of 25 or 30 years ago. Times have changed upon us dramatically. And I feel like in particular, this letter has a lot to say to us. Jesus says to this church, he talks to them about their loving and their self-giving. It makes me think of the scripture who says, unless, where Jesus said, unless a corn of wheat is buried, it will abide alone. And you see, there's something about going through the furnace when your dream dies. There's something about going through the furnace and the death of your vision or whatever it is that you face. There's something about going through that that you experience death. But Revelations chapter two and verse 26 through 27 says, to all who are victorious, to all who obey me to the very end, I will give them authority over the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. We are gonna rule and reign with Christ. This is not only the millennial reign, this is the eternal reign with the Lord. Can we give him another hand of praise tonight? You say, Pastor, why are we not the object of the iron rod? 
It's because those of us who have confessed Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have passed beneath the shepherd's rod, not the rod of judgment. And you've got to remember this same God who has the shepherd is the same God who exercises judgment. So all of this will make more sense as we go along. Look at verse 19 with me. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. I see that you're at Smyrna on the back. I am dealing with the Thyatira church. If you want to try and catch up with me, Mark, if you can help him find it. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your comfort, your constant improvement in all these things. The reason Jesus is watching and the reason that we have a class that you're teaching Sunday, Norma, called Discovering Spiritual Maturity, we know that it takes, you know, two to 20 years to really grow in Christ. Some people just grow really fast. They just dive headlong in. Some people grow kind of slow. And we've also learned that just because somebody, and I'm going to just keep talking, we also know that somebody that uh, is timid or somebody that has lots of questions or somebody that maybe doesn't embrace the spiritual disciplines as a delight, but they see them more as a duty. And see, the thing that we want to teach you in, in discovering spiritual maturity is that the disciplines are a delight. They're not a duty. I don't come to church because I have to. I come to church because I want to. I don't read my Bible because I have to. I read my Bible because I want to. I don't pray because I have to. I love to talk with Jesus. And I don't love others because I have to. I love them because Christ in me compels them to love them. God has changed me. God turns the racist into somebody that loves everyone. God turns the selfish into to the generous. God does a miracle in our life when we're born again. But some people grow a little faster and some people grow a little slower. And the thing that we want to do is to be there all along to walk with them. So the question I would just kind of write out to the side in my outline tonight is, those eyes of Jesus are upon Woodland and they're upon you and me. Those eyes of Jesus are upon Woodland and they're upon you and me. How are you growing tonight? How are you growing in your faith? How are you growing in your walk with Christ? How are you growing in dominion? How are you learning how to discern and to assess all things? Do you get confused when you listen to somebody say, the Bible is not the word of God, or the Bible was just a collection? I got asked this yesterday at the hospital where I was sitting with someone for surgery, and someone was talking to me, and he says, well, isn't the Bible just a collection of stories and things that, you know, I took Bible in college. You know, where you take Bible is also very important as well. And I said, no, the Bible is the Word of God. But they said, oh, but the Catholic Church gave us the Bible. I says, oh, no, the Catholic Church did not give us the Bible. The Bible says the holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they gave us the Word of the Lord. You quote the Word of God. You don't quote some commentator. You don't quote your pastor. You quote the Word of God, because the Word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword that cuts and divides among them. And the liberal people will never tell you those things they will tell you what they want you to know. And you have, to, you have a responsibility to be sure. I'm not telling you what I want you to know. You have a responsibility to study the word like the Bereans so you'll know whether what I'm telling you is the word of God or not. And so that's how this discernment and this dominion is at work in our life. And Jesus is asking us to partner with him because there's this deep corruption that has taken place in the church. And he says, tells us about it in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. If you want to uh, follow along in your Bible with me, or it should be in your outline. I have this complaint against you. Now, he's got a complaint against the church. But I'm taking this personal because remember I showed you in verse 18, he was talking to the pastor. Hmm? Somebody say, oy vey, if you're Jewish. He's talking to the pastor, I believe here. Now, I could be wrong. It could be to the whole church. But he says, you're permitting that woman. He's not against, some people have taken this to say that there shouldn't be any women preachers or women leaders. That, that's not true. You know, you know, some people, I've read some commentators says, well, this is another example of why, you know, women can't be preachers or prophetesses. Or pro it's not true. Philip had four daughters that were prophetesses that we read about in the book of Acts. Remember that? And we've looked at a whole series of women that God mightily used. It was this woman's error. It was this woman's calling herself a prophet, like the Jews that said they were Jews, but they were not. The apostles that said they were, but they were not. 
And he says, she le- he's, this pastor just evidently hasn't got the courage or the intestinal fortitude, the guts to call her out on it. Because I'm sure she's pretty popular. I mean, she's led a lot of people astray. I'm sure she's probably got a voting block. I'm sure she's a fairly popular woman and he doesn't have the courage to call her out. And he says, she's leading my service astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat foods offered to idols. Now we know, this is important. I just finished two messages, one on how to talk with your children about sex and one about celebrating marriage. The church is not a bunch of Christian prudes, okay? God was the creator of sex, therefore it's a good thing. What God is against is the perversion of sex because of what it does to people. And she's perverting human sexuality. We'll get into that a little more. She's perverting this gift of human sexuality. She is what we would call today, now no offense to the political party. I'm talking about a philosophy of life. She is what we call today a libertarian. And the libertarian says, it's okay for you to do whatever you want to do. You know, you just do whatever you want to do and the government shouldn't interfere. Nobody else should interfere. And, and so we're just libertarians and we just want laws that will help us to make more money. We just want laws that will keep our streets safe from crime. We just want law. But, you know, don't call something a crime that's something personal that somebody else says. It's a very, she's a libertarian, a libertine in her thought. And again, that is not a, 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 a throw off against the libertarian party but you have to understand these philosophies of thoughts that we have today they're nothing new they're nothing new today I had a phone call believe it or not somebody was calling me because they were struggling about what Plato had said and I said why in the world are you reading Plato <laughs> and I said well I was just wondering and I go have you read your Bible <laughs> You know, I like, I, I like, I've got a book of Plato's teachings right there on one of my shelves at home. I like them. They're, they're wonderful to quote from. They're wonderful to quote from Socrates. But why are you reading Plato trying to get answers? Go to the Word of God. And so when we went to the Word of God, he says, but you know, I really want to talk about Plato. I says, well, talk to your college professor about Plato. I want to talk to you about, and he's way out of college. You see, this perversion of doctrine, God is calling it a perversion of sexuality. And again, if you go back into the Old Testament, any time that Israel went after other gods, God called it whoredom. And I know that's an offensive word in our, in our day today, but the King James word of that is whoredom. And what it simply meant is they went chasing, they committed spiritual adultery. Our response to that is that we have got to be sensitive towards truth. We want to be the kind of congregation, according to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, that we learn how to approve of things that are excellent. We want to be the kind of parents that we learn how to approve of things that are excellent. We don't want to be the kind of parents that are prudes and are saying no, no, no to everything because we're afraid. We don't want to look down upon the world. Yesterday, the man that was talking with me, I, I just simply shared with him, the gospel, being born again, doesn't make me better than the drug dealer on the street. It doesn't make me better than the alcoholic on the street. The, the gospel isn't about making us better people than other people. The gospel is about a total life transformation. The old Dennis Clanton just simply does exist anymore. My sins are gone. I have been made a brand new person in Christ and I will never die. This body may die. You may bury this body or I may drown and get eaten up by all the little guppies in the ocean, but I will be alive in the presence of Christ. Never heard that before. (laughs) We have all of these things, the teaching that's being perverted, we've got to recast the gospel again in a language that people can understand. I love that song Mark sang tonight, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And I love the fact that Jesus' eye is upon me. When I was a boy, all my mom or daddy had to do was look at me. And I understood it. How many of you have been in a restaurant and you need your waitress and you don't want to go, hey you, because then you know they're probably going to spit in your iced tea. But you learn to catch their eye. You do that, you, you catch their eye, and you catch their eye, and you just kind of look, and they come over to help you, you know? All right, how many of you, your wife's got a look? She, Becky gives me a lot of them right there on that front row. 
She's got an eye that she'll give. Sometimes Becky will be talking to me and I'll just look at her and smile and she'll go, would you listen to me? I said, I can tell you every word. She said, but you're not listening to me. Quit looking at me like that. You know, we have this eye. We look. Jesus' eye is upon us. And tonight, my suggestion to you, no, that's not strong enough. My urging you, that's strong enough. What the word of God is saying to you, that's strong enough. Is you need to get your eye upon Jesus. And let him fill you. Let him enlarge your heart. Be in awe of Jesus once again. Be in awe of God. Be amazed by his grace. Be in love with him. I don't want the corrupted eye of a Jezebel in my life or in my church. Can you say amen? The second thing I say is how can we discern? We discern by having a sound Christology. Christology just simply means a sound doctrine about Christ. We discern by a sound Christology. I'll be quick with these because I want to spend a little more time at the end. And who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ, anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. What's he saying? Anyone that denies Jesus, that person is an antichrist. The second passage, that is 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit You must test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world, and this is how we know if they have the spirit of God. Do you have this? Okay. This is how we know if they have the spirit of God. If a person, man or a woman, claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, That person is not from God. So with no disrespect to my Muslim friends, those who say that Muslims, whether his name is Muhammad or anybody else that teach that Jesus was not the son of God, they're antichrist. For those people who say that Jesus is just another incarnation of a higher being, they are the spirit of antichrist. And I could go from uh, various religious groups to denominations to telling you that. We have to learn to pick up on these things. That Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus, born in a human body. There are certain things that we can disagree upon, but there are certain things that are fundamental to being a biblical Christian, whether you call yourself an evangelical or Calvinist or an Arminian or or Catholic or whatever, and that is the birth and death of Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his miracles, his atoning for us, the second coming, that the Bible is the infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. Those things are fundamental to what we believe, and that's what Paul is getting at here because everything in the Bible points to Jesus or points back to Jesus. Such a person has a spirit of antichrist which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, my dear children. You've already won a victory over these people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people, whether they're religious or not, now these, he's writing about religious people. And religion, look at me just, I'll hold your place there in the verse. Religion has been the cause of a lot of wars. Religion has been the cause of a lot of destruction. Religion has been the cause of a lot of division. And that's the reason that we're not about religion around here, not taking away anything from what James says where he says true religion is. But the fact of the matter, that Jesus has come to free us from religious requirements so that we could enter into a relationship where we delight in being the people of God, in witnessing for Christ, in reading our Bibles, in praying, in serving God, and giving ourselves to one another. These are not duties for us. These are our absolute delights in what we love to do. Religion has a viewpoint that to be acceptable to God, you've got to do these things. I am acceptable to God by the blood of Jesus, not by what I do. That's the reason that we can say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight as well? Well, 
he gives a powerful statement here that I think you really need to hear because it will help you in your conversations with people today. Those people, the people who deny Christ, those people belong to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint and the world listens to them. But we belong to God and those who belong to God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. That is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. If somebody compromises on the doctrine of Christ, they will compromise on everything else. Let me say it again. If somebody, I don't care if you can't explain how Jesus was conceived. That's why they call it a miracle. Okay? I don't care if you don't like the fact that Jesus says that he's the way to the Father. That's why we call him the Savior. And so it's important to understand, not trying to be impressive with a big word, but Christology is important. What we believe and what we teach about Christ, that's why it's important that we believe the Bible. But now a sound Christology will lead you to having sound ethics. Not like Jezebel, you'll have sound ethics. And this, we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in truth. But those who obey God's word show how completely they love him. This is how we know we're living in him. For those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. If you live in Christ, you will touch the untouchables. If you live in Christ, you will love the unlovable. If you live in Christ, you will be a kind and a forgiving person. It doesn't mean that you won't be discerning. You will be discerning, but you will also have dominion. It doesn't mean that you won't face battles or you may not even suffer for your faith. But in the end, according to this book, we win. We win, hallelujah. And that's why it's so important of understanding Christology leads to ethics. And also one other thing, sound Christology and sound ethics lead you to church membership. Because there's no such thing as long ranger Christians. And I'm not talking about, you know, Calvinist, Arminian, Catholic. Look at this. John goes on, the same John writing this book, he's writing in an epistle. These people, they left our churches. I'll tell you something. They left because John had the courage to confront them. And we don't talk about this a lot, but from time to time, I've had to confront some foolish stuff. People who come in saying they were apostles, people who come in saying that, you know, there's no such thing as hell, people that come in with all kinds of weird stuff all the time. You just, and every pastor does that. And you just, you just confront that. And what always happens when you confront it and they don't get a platform is they leave going looking for somebody else to help them get started. And so it's important that, that we understand you may not always know what's going on in the background, but you see, I'm a part of this church whether the church decides to do something I like or don't like. Okay? That is, I, I'm a part of this church as long as the church doesn't change its doctrinal stance, as long as the church doesn't change its mission, now, if the church, for instance, the Assemblies of God ever changed its doctrinal stance or changed its mission, I'd be the first one out the door. I believe in this. But as long as the church, but you, whether, you're, whether you're Presbyterian or Methodist or, or Baptist, that's not the point. The point is, all of us need to belong and be a part of a biblically functioning church. Amen. Let me say it again. Biblically functioning church. Understand what I'm saying? Biblically functioning church. We function out of the scripture, church, the body of Christ. Let's give him a hand of praise for that as well. Well, let's kind of wrap this up because I do want to spend some time in the altar. It's interesting to me, the judgment on Jezebel and her disciples and this, this comment about the depths of Satan here, this is very interesting to me. In the Old Testament, Jezebel sponsored 850 prophets. She tried to wipe out all of the prophets of God. She tried to kill them all. And she was the one that led Israel into idolatry. As a matter of fact, her husband, King Ahab, married her. She was not, a, she was not Jewish. She was not Israelite. And the Bible tells us this was the worst sin that Ahab committed. It's the worst sin that Ahab committed when he married Jezebel. Because by inviting her in, she brought in a very highly, you know, sexualized religion, building the, 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 you know, the temples of Baal and the Baal poles, which all had to do with just things that I, I don't even like to talk about. 
But she led people astray. Ahab didn't have any discernment. She must have been beautiful. She must have been charismatic. A lot of those things we know about her when we read about her in the Bible. She was powerful. I mean, she, she, when she made a threat, she followed through on it. She killed a man so her husband could have his vineyard and farm. She made Elijah run for his life. You know, God had to come to him and strengthen him. So she was a powerful, strong woman. Uh, she would have been, you know, the ultimate feminist of her day. Her king, her husband, ended up being her servant. That's how powerful she was. I think this is why she's being called Jezebel. I don't believe this is her real name. But because somehow or another, she has been able to lead this church away from the purity of the gospel to a seduction that's going to tie into the rest of the book of Revelation. You see, Thyatira not only had, was the place where the bronze or the brass was, was smelted and, 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 the, and the metals mixed together to make that, but Thyatira was also unique among the seven cities, the seven churches that we're looking at. Thyatira had no natural defense. Thyatira was an economic powerhouse. Thyatira prospered under Rome's influence. It was, it was, it would have been, if New York is considered our financial capital to, in America today, Thyatira would have been the financial capital of that part of Eurasia. But to participate in the financial capitals, you had to be a part of a trade guild. Some of you remember studying about guilds in, in medieval history. Well, trade guilds existed all the way back, but they always had to do with certain gods. And in Thyatira, there was a multiplicity of gods because of all the people who came from Persia, came from Africa, came from Southern Asia, came from Europe, came from Rome. There was a multiplicity of gods. And they had built a big, big, you know, temple also to Caesar because they wanted to stay. It would have been gods plus Thyatira, like I said a few minutes ago. But to be a part of these trade guilds, you had to participate in a meal where they offered sacrifices to their gods. And not to be a part of the trade guild was to commit economic suicide. I don't know if it's still like this, but when I first moved to Michigan, there were all kinds of people who told me, says, you know, I... I you know, I don't believe in the things that the union stand for. I, I don't vote the way the union wants me to vote, and, but they take my money. If I want to work, I have to be a part of the union. There was a political movement in our state. I think it passed, didn't it? Where you could free to work without being a member of a union. Well, in Thyatira, that would have never happened. If you were going to do business in that city, you had to be a member just try to transpose unions, except these were cultic unions. These were unions that were sacrificing to demons. And the Apostle Paul, you remember Paul said, if I can help you just get a grasp on this, because this, this is important to understand the buying and selling. All of you are familiar with, you know, unless you've got the mark of 666, you know, how many of you know what I'm talking about there? That's, you know, uh, it's just, all of us are familiar with that. This ties right back to this church. Because... You couldn't buy or sell. Christians got saved. They could no longer sacrifice to these idols. Paul had wrote to the Corinthian church who had a lot of problems themselves. And Paul had said to them, says, look, if you go to the market and you buy meat, don't ask whether it's been sacrificed to an idol. Because in Corinth, that had probably had happened. Just buy the meat. You know, the idol is nothing. The devil is nothing. God is everything. Buy the meat. But... Do not, Paul says about these same type of guilds, they had them in Corinth. He says, do not go to these feasts where they're making sacrifices to the idols because they're making sacrifices to demons. You don't want to participate in the worship of these demons. And you and I look at that and we go, but how are you going to support your family? That was a part of the price that they paid for being a Christian. That was part of the price that they paid for following Jesus. Many Christians could have saved their lives if they'd just been willing to take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. But rather than do that, they would march singing hymns and go right into the Colosseum and be thrown to the lions. 
and the crowds would sit there and watch them be devoured because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. And I've wondered so many times, what did those Christians think as they looked up at that mat? and I've stood there in the bottom of it and wandered through the, the, the bottoms of it. I've wondered, what did those Christians think? Becky and I knelt in the Colosseum together and we prayed and we gave God thanks for what they had done, those Christians, the stance they took, and that we would be found faithful if we faced the same thing. But I remember saying to Becky, what did they think when they looked up and they saw all these cheering throngs of people cheering about them being mauled and being devoured by beasts? And I've wondered at times, It's the same people that are trying to persecute evangelical Christians and put them out of business because they won't make a cake or they won't make a cupcake or they won't do something that is against their convictions and the courts are moving to deny freedom of worship and freedom of expression and freedom of speech in the name of securing the rights for somebody else. Not saying we won't make a cake for you, but we just won't make messages like you want. There are plenty of other bakers to do that. How far have we come? And you see, we're living in a time where I believe revelation is gonna be more important than ever because sooner than you think, Jesus is gonna come back. And for some of you, like my neighbor that I spent some time with last night and then just got off the phone just before I walked out here for service, that Leo is probably breathing his last tonight in the Wyandotte Hospital and I promised his wife, Diane, that we would be praying for him. Friends, there's only a thin veil that separates us from eternity. And I'm calling on you, let the eye of Jesus look into your soul by his spirit and through his word. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Don't go to the depths of Satan. Go to the depths of God. Psalms 42 and verse seven says, deep calls to deep. That doesn't mean you get weird. That doesn't mean you do weird things. That doesn't mean your personality goes crazy. That doesn't mean that you become a, pardon my French, an idiot. And I'm on firm biblical ground there because Paul says, you know, I love praying in the spirit. Paul says, I thank God I pray in tongues more than all of you. But when I'm with people, I'd rather say five words that you can understand because I don't want people coming in and me babbling on in some tongue and they go, idiots. Going to the deep things of God is letting the word of God produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the holiness of God in our lives. It's not focusing on the unimportant things, but it's focusing upon simplicity and transparency and openness and vulnerability and trust like we try to teach through our small groups. The deep things of Satan are always things of rebellion. Remember, Lucifer was cast out of heaven according to Isaiah and Ezekiel. He was cast out of heaven because of the rebellion he tried to lead against God. And the Bible tells us that rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. And Lucifer, according to the scriptures, was able to cause one-third of the angels to follow him and his rebellion. Those are the demonic spirits we know of today. But the deep things of God, we are not rebellious. We are obedient to God. And we're not leading people away from God. Christ. We are seeking to be reconcilers to Christ. We are seeking to be messengers of the good news. We are seeking to turn people's eyes upon Jesus and to see that God doesn't hate them, but God so loves this world that he wants to save them and give them a brand new life. Somebody give him a hand of praise tonight. Deep things of Satan are about arrogance. The things of God that are deep are about humility. The deep things of Satan are about boasting and bragging about who I am and what I've done. The deep things of God are I am a child of God. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was asked to come and help an independent church. We I've met with them on several occasions and someone had come in with the spirit of Jezebel There was all kinds of immorality going on in the name of Christ. Families that were being broken up. And there was a holy fury inside of me because of what it was doing to people. The leaders of that, who happened to be men, 
struck out against me and struck out against the leadership of the church. It's part of the reason that I'm a part of the Assemblies of God. And if I wasn't a part of the Assemblies of God, I'd be part of another biblical-based denomination because there's covering. There's covering. There are people in our district, our superintendent, our presbyters. I've been privileged to serve there. But there's covering for our church. And this church had no covering. I was able to, after we worked through all of that, to say, look, you need to be a part. I think the Assemblies of God is, is a wonderful denomination to be a part of, but you need to be a part of something where you've got help. And where your congregation knows. But I watched the judgment of God. And friends, I mean, I hate it when people just think, God's some softy old granddaddy. I watched God deal with these two men, charismatic, powerful, outspoken, handsome, muscular men. I watched God deal with both of them because of their lack of repentance. Bring them to a bed of suffering. When I think of my bed, I think of a place of mine and Becky's love. I think of a place of mine and Becky's rest. I think of the place that when I die, I don't want to be in a hospital. I want to be in my bed at home surrounded by my family and by my children. That's what I think of when I think of my bed. But God says to her, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away. And then finally tonight, what does it mean when Jesus says, I'll give you the morning star? Jesus is the morning star. This is the promise that he makes to overcomers. Again, in verse 18 and verse 20, he was speaking to the pastor, but in this verse, he's speaking to all of you and me tonight. He says, keep your eyes upon me. You're in this world, but you're not of it. Don't bury your treasure. Don't bury your gifts. Go through 301. Discover your spiritual gifts and your ministry. Don't bury your treasure and expect when Jesus comes, you're going to be rewarded. The one that buried his treasure, the master called him a wicked servant, but the one who took his treasure. You know what? I can't tell you how many times I've messed up. I can't tell you how many times I've left the pulpit and said to Becky, I know the anointing abides, but we're at a boat today. I have no idea. I can't tell you how many times I've gone home and felt frustrated and like a failure. I can't tell you how many times. That's a part of living. But I can't tell you how many wonderful lessons, and I can tell you this, I'm glad I had never stopped. And I'm glad you haven't ever stopped. Because Jesus says, he's the morning star. You go, wow, he's the morning star. Remember in the book of Job, he talks about the morning stars, how the morning stars rejoice with God. And then we'll get to it in Revelation chapter 22, where we'll see that Jesus is a morning star. Jesus says, if you will walk with me, if you will overcome, if you will stay grounded in truth, if you will stay grounded in ethics, if you will follow me and be faithful to me no matter the cost, I will give you myself. And if you've got Jesus, you can kick the devil right back to the pits of hell itself. You don't have to live afraid. You don't have to live afraid. Stand with me tonight and let's, let's pray. Well, as a matter of fact, we've got time. Come to the altar. It's 8 o'clock and let's just come and kneel in his presence and bring your notes. And if you need to leave, just leave quietly, but we're going to spend some time in his presence. Mark, lead us in that song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.